Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Matt Brusky, our usual host, is on vacation. So we're joined by a very able regular substitute. She's become the the regular substitute, Joanna Bouch, the uh, Director of Movement Politics at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. So uh, welcome, Joanna. Hello, Robert. Hello, listeners. So excited to be here again with the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. And our usual panelist, Claire Zoutke, the healthcare director at Citizen Action Wisconsin. Uh, welcome, Claire. Thank you. It's good to be here over Zoom. So we have a lot of interesting topics this week. Uh, by my goodness, at the state and national level, we're just chock full of important news. Uh, but I want to start with an important benchmark in Wisconsin. This is the 10th anniversary of Act 10 the draconian attack on labor rights, the rigging of basically the rights of workers as compared to the rights of big corporation and management uh, that was executed by Scott Walker. And in many ways, it shows the difference between the breed of conservative that dominates the Republican Party now and what has been the democratic approach in that when they have power, they change the rules of the game, the structure, in order to have more power long term. They try to rig the system in their favor, whereas Democrats come up with some piecemeal reforms traditionally and don't change the the structure of power and allow it to be tilted more and more to the elite, to the plutocrats that fund uh, the the conservative movement, big corporations and, and billionaires primarily. And so Act 10 is a cardinal example of that. It has dramatically reduced the power of workers in the state in their own workplaces, and it has defunded the labor movement in a way that makes them not a counterbalancing force to corporate power in our political system. And so it took away a fundamental right, uh, but it also changed the power in Wisconsin politics. And it really is the predecessor to the gerrymandering and the further rigging of through voter suppression of, 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 reg, of, of political elections in Wisconsin. But on the other hand, it generated an historic mass protest movement that uh, really set a precedent for the next decade. And in many ways is one of the predecessors because all eyes were on Wisconsin for weeks and weeks. Internationally, I was on all sorts of international television around it, not just national. Uh, personally, as were a whole lot of Wisconsin people. And so, uh, which led this summer, ultimately, in many ways, to the uh, great, the largest in terms of number of people involved, protest movement in American history, the street protests for racial justice and criminal justice reform uh, spurred by the police murder of George Floyd in the Twin City. And uh, Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of the AFL-CIO here in Wisconsin, and also the chair of one of this action of Wisconsin's two boards has said that it really created an ethic, a spirit, which still lives today in Wisconsin, the labor movement. But I know Claire and Joanna, who are much younger than I am and therefore uh, more able in many ways, uh, they um, both have different experiences with it as as Wisconsinites and as people who actually were uh, were folks who, who lived through that controversy, and it, it's ongoing because we have to restore those labor rights. It's not over. We just haven't been able to restore them yet. So, Claire, you are a, you know, a, a, a person with deep roots in Milwaukee, a real labor town, uh, which and, and it's been harmed by this attack on workers' rights. But 
you have a real fa- family history around labor and therefore a specific orientation to Act 10. Yeah, um, that is, that's accurate. Um, I was raised by two public servants. My father uh, was a city Milwaukee fireman, so he was a member of the IAFF. And uh, my mother is now a retired um, county parks employee uh, from Milwaukee County. And she, for many years, um, almost my entire life and childhood, uh, she was the union steward for her local, for her work site, a local 882 asked me, shout out. Um, and so Act 10 was uh, really, really devastating for, for my family. Um, my, my mother found a lot of solidarity and camaraderie in her union. And in fact, growing up and hearing her talk about her union experiences at the dinner table is uh, one of the things that motivated me to enter a life of, of public service. And so, uh, you know, when, when Act 10 happened um, and it was really emotionally devastating to her to watch her union be disassembled uh, piece by piece. And AFSME at Milwaukee County has has never recovered. Um, and, and I don't think she ever got over that loss. Um, on a personal level, I will say um, that, you know, I graduated uh, from college in 2010 and um, my, my first job in my field, I won't say it's my first job, my first job in my field um, coming out of college was was because of the organizing that happened after Act 10. I got a job on the uh, recall, recall petition gathering um, effort for gathering petitions to recall uh, State Senator Alberta Darling. And then I got a job as an organizer working for Sandy Pash in that recall race. And so Act 10 um, was really a baptism by fire for um, a lot of uh, organizers of my generation here in Wisconsin. Um, it put me on this on this career path, and I I know that there are folks all over the country now doing incredible work who got their start here in Wisconsin organizing because of Act Ten. Uh, Joanna, as a uh, yeah. Lati- Latina woman that grew up in Milwaukee, you also have your own unique point of vantage on this. Yeah, you know. Um, I think for me, Act 10 was something that really opened my eyes to the political world. Um, I had, so I had just finished supporting my sister in her first state assembly race. Uh, She had just got elected. Um, But, you know, for me at the time, I I, I felt like I was just helping out my sister, right? I was helping my sister do something that she was passionate about and wanted to, wanted to get done. Um, But fast forward, she gets sworn in and this, you know, wild legislation is put forth by, by Governor Walker, um, you know, and I saw folks organizing. Um, my mentor, Sarah Noble, was organizing people to go to Madison and protest outside of the Capitol. And I had never seen protests in that type of mass. Like, I was just blown away um, by the power that those, that I saw in those people, you know, outside of the Capitol. Um, you know, back to my sister, she was one of the uh, assembly legislators that had her vote stolen. And I remember having that emotional conversation with her after she left the floor and just how disappointed we both were in government. You know, um, we had done all this work to get her elected to, to fight for us, to be the voice of, you know, the near south side of Milwaukee. And that had been robbed of her. It had been robbed of the people of the 8th Assembly District. Um, which is a, you know, a super majority Latino district, as we all know, um, and just the heartbreak, right? And um, 
you know, one thing, you know, like you mentioned earlier that Stephanie Bloomingdale said of the spirit of the protest um, really being birthed during Act 10. Like, I totally believe that, too. Um, I think that it was the start to seeing how powerful organized people can really be. Um, and it was really eye opening, even though we lost that that fight. Right. We lost that in that legislative vote. Um, it was an eye opener for a lot of us. Yes, and we still unfinished business. Thank you for that perspective, Joanna and Claire, uh, in that we need to restore these rights. And in fact, they weren't perfect before. We need to modernize it, but in a way that really empowers workers and empowers a lot of the workers that have been left out of the right to a union even before Act 10, right? Because union density was decreasing. But Wisconsin's gone because of the effectiveness of this, and then right to work, which uh, Walker promised he wouldn't do and then did anyway, called it divide and conquer to a billionaire, Diane Hendricks, in a, in a documentary, uh, that we have become, gone from a state that had much greater than average union unionization, which means more power at work, more power in, in the political process with the resources that come with workers joining together. Uh, and now we are below average. So in in the state in, in the country, so that is a that and when you see our our income stagnating during the very slow covering the Great Recession, that has to do with that. If people not being able to afford their 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 lives around the state, that has a lot to do with Act Ten. And the only silver lining here is is that uh, because of the uh, organizing by a lot of people, uh, President Biden is behind the most radical labor platform to expand worker rights since FDR. And I'm not the only one saying that. Labor leaders are saying that. It's called the PRO Act. We'll have more to talk about there. But we got to remember that Democrats, if they can get back control of the legislature and the, uh, and the governorship at the same time, need to restore these rights. We need to put them in the state constitution. And they're not actually all of them being clear about that. So folks need to keep reminding them that this is unfinished business. But on the, along the lines of rigging the system, and I, we talked earlier about how this rigs the system, uh, there's, other, there, there's a sense, and we'll do this after break, that Republicans, as I said before at the beginning, go and change the terms of power, this guy's structural reform, when they have control, and Democrats have not traditionally got not to get smarter because power has been shifted dramatically towards the elite, towards billionaires, towards corporations. And so that really needs to be Democratic agenda. I mean, things like the filibuster relate to that as well, because the Senate is very undemocratic in its representation. It represents land rather than people. And there's another ruthlessness. We talked about Walker's divide and conquer that we're seeing now in Wisconsin, and that is the endless crusade against a basic public health uh, measure during a pandemic, the mask mandate. And so we're going to take a quick break. This is Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We were reflecting on the legacy of Act 10. This is the 10th anniversary of that abominable event, but also in many ways, the beginning of the protest movements that have made a new era of progressive reform possible in, in the United States. Act 10 was an historic protest, put Wisconsin on the map, but it's still unfinished business into achieving its aspiration. So we're seeing in the pandemic, the same Republican Party controlled by a, a malignant kind of conservatism that's really connected to the greed of the elites in this country, where no profit is enough, corporations, big corporations and billionaires. Uh, we're now seeing this ruthlessness around a pandemic 
And it seems to me, I want to get Claire and Joanna's uh, perspective, that since we're in what amounts to a metaphorical war against a virus that is, uh, that is killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and robbing families of their loved ones and their friends and their, their aunts and uncles and grandparents prematurely, as this happens, as we have what amounts to a, um, a 9-11 attack every day, or I think it's seven airliners going down and aren't treating it like that, uh, we, are, we have a party that is trying to get in the way. And we have a legislature here that has repeatedly tried to take away the governor's power to mandate masks, which protect everyone. This is a freedom that is not a freedom. You don't have a right to risk people's lives, right? Uh, for, for your own convenience or out of some ideology, want to make some ideological statement. Sorry, that infringes on other people's rights. But they've not only tried every way to, to overturn it, they just did it again, the legislature, and the governor again reimposed it. Now a Republican donor has taken it back to the state Supreme Court. And they keep saying that this is about process. They think the governor's overreached, but they offer nothing. They have all the power, and the governor wants to work with them to come up with what public health measures you should have, and they won't do it. I've never seen such pure power-grabbing partisanship, which is heedless. And it is very much like uh, getting in the way of war industries in World War II and saying, I want cars made, I want luxury yachts made, or getting in the way of rationing when we need to ration in World War II to get food to our troops on the front lines. Am I wrong about this, Joanna and Claire, or is this just we're not even raising the emotional temperature enough to describe how unethical even evil this is? Yeah, it is. It is uh, horrific. And it's also it, it's so unfathomable for me to imagine um, that that they would just grab this power for the sake of having it and then not use it in any sort of way that would actually help their constituents, right? Like if the governor were being obstructionist in um, in efforts to uh, you know keep people alive or stop the spread of the virus, and the legislature needed to grab power in order to actually help people, it would it would be one thing. But it's not like they're trying to to grab all of this power so that they can do literally either literally nothing or literally things that make it impossible for us to save lives and it's it's worse than an abdicate uh, abdication of power it is um it is an abuse of power at the expense of thousands of lives of our neighbors and um you're right the the country and the state's death total from this virus is so is so high, it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around how big it is. And it's hard to come up with words that that express the level of, of community tragedy and trauma that we are experiencing. And to have elected officials who don't um, recognize that and are actively working against our ability to get through this pandemic, it is tragic. Uh, Joanna, um, am I overstating this? Is Claire overstating this? Walk us back. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, you guys know we're on the same team here. I mean, the GOP has been letting us down for the past decade, right? We were just talking about Act 10. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking um, to see them go after, you know, the mask mandate when, you know, their only reason for doing that is because of process, right? You know, like you said, they're not putting forth any other alternatives. You know, we've been waiting for Voss for, you know, what, eight, nine months. We've had the most inactive 
uh, assembly in the entire country during this pandemic. And then they come back to work and this is what we're getting. Uh, it's just an unfortunate reality of Wisconsin GOP, right? Whether it's Robin Voss, um, LeMahie in the Senate, Senator Johnson, you know, in con like, what are they doing, at, you know, at the federal level? Like, what are they doing except attacking our marginalized communities in Wisconsin and all over this country? Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. I would suggest following the money. You know, who wants power? They're who funds their campaigns, right? They don't, they're not independently wealthy, most of these folks. Ron Johnson is, but Robin Voss isn't. Devin LeMayhew, the Senate Majority Leader, is not. And think about this. They want to allow the virus to keep spreading, right? You'd think that the virus was supporting them. If viruses make political contributions, we could consider that because they certainly are trying to promote the virus's growth. And therefore, it'll mutate more, by the way, folks. Get around the vaccine if it's allowed to spread, as Anthony Fauci has pointed out uh, many times, among other experts. And but then we must reopen everything with no safety standards at the same time. We're going to we're going to get in the way of containing the virus and we're going to force schools open with no safety standards, make meatpacking workers work, make every kind of essential worker go out in person and make sure it's also dangerous for them. No, yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, Ron Johnson was just talking about the his concern for the economy overheating, right? Because of folks' excess savings as one of his arguments to why they're not passing, you know, COVID relief, right? And it's just like, what are you talking about? Excess savings? Who who has that? Where is that, right? Because the communities that we're talking about um, and are and working with are losing their jobs every other day, right? Are, you know, not being able to access unemployment because things are so backed up. Um, so the excuses that the GOP has presented um, to not act in a time where folks are dying all across the country at, you know, rapid rates, uh, it's, it's unexcusable. And yeah, you're right. The answer is that they're just following the money like they always do. And well, I'm glad you mentioned Ron Johnson. There's so much Ron Johnson's up to. We're not going to have time in this episode. We'll have to get back to the Ron Johnson follies uh, next week, hopefully. Uh, but let me go to something more positive. We have a new administration in Washington. It's the boldest, most progressive administration uh, since the 1960s, which unfortunately isn't saying much, but it's saying a lot. In other words, I'm also by comparison, but also legitimately. And they're taking the virus seriously. They're going all out. They're talking. They're 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 not spe trying to spend too little money. They found out the Republicans are not really interested in working with them, just pretending to. So they're going to move through COVID relief, through the budget reconciliation process. Claire, one thing out of the radar screen is there's some there's an extremely interesting House bill moving its way through the process that would make healthcare more affordable, which we have been saying is critical to controlling the pandemic. If people don't feel comfortable, they have a way to pay for their health care, they're going to avoid care, and the virus will keep spreading. So, Claire, I know we only have two minutes now, but we can go into the next segment. Uh, why don't you start to lay out uh, what's in this bill and why why that's really effect and why that's important? And we'll also talk about, on the next segment, the, state, the implications for the state budget fight. 
Yeah, so uh, this is a bill, like we said, that is um, in the committee stage of the process at the um, United States House of Representatives. Um, we're hopeful that it would um, pass and be able to get through the Senate as well, because it, like Robert said, would have huge implications for uh, folks here in Wisconsin. But basically, this is a bill that would supercharge the Affordable Care Act, and it would make premiums for plans um, purchased through the Affordable Care Act much, much more affordable and would provide incentive, financial incentive for states like Wisconsin who have not expanded their Medicaid programs under the ACA yet, um, uh, incentives for them to do so. And um, this would be, uh, like we said, a, a huge tool in being able to um, tackle the pandemic by allowing folks to receive the care that they need. Um, so basically the House bill uh, would eliminate premiums for a very uh, low income people who are already um, eligible for plans on the ACA marketplaces. And then it would, like I said, vastly reduce uh, premiums for, for other folks, including providing new subsidies for people who um, currently are not eligible for them. So it expands the pool of people um, who, who could get more affordable plans on the ACA. And we'll, I'll give you more details after the break. Okay, we have to take a quick break on Battleground Wisconsin. We will be right back. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig of Citizen Action Wisconsin, joined by Claire Zautke and Joanna Bouch, also of Citizen Action Wisconsin. And we were talking about the major healthcare changes being proposed at the federal level that would both supercharge the ACA and make it even more tempting, even for Republicans to support Badgicare expansion here in Wisconsin, one of the another unethical thing that Republican Party has been preventing since Scott Walker, budget after budget, costing us money and covering fewer people. So Claire was going to talk about how in the Affordable Care Act marketplace, uh, this bill that's making its way through committee in the House would make it more affordable for people, critical to control the pandemic, plus a fundamental human right, the right to health care. But then we're also going to talk about what it would do uh, with Medicaid and Badger Care uh, in order to not only cover more people, but to make it really hard for a state to keep turning down the money like Wisconsin has every budget cycle. Yeah, so um, to, to build on this idea of um, healthcare being more affordable for individuals and families who purchase it through the marketplace, I'll give a couple examples. So um, a single individual who makes $35,000 a year would pay $85 a month instead of $200 a month in premiums. So you can see how huge of a shift that is. And now you may be thinking, you know, I make a lot more than $30,000 a year. Um, how would this, how would this help me? And so a, let's say that um, a typical family, uh, I shouldn't say typical, a family of four, but that has a combined income of $110,000 a year would see their premiums cut almost in half because part of this bill is saying that nobody should have to pay more than a certain percentage of their income for healthcare costs. So, so you can see how this affects people from a broad range of, of incomes and beyond even what the original Affordable Care Act did. So, so this is this could actually mean a lot for you. And so um, you listeners, I, I encourage you to, to read up more on this bill. Um, the other thing that I said the bill does um, that would be really beneficial 
for the state of Wisconsin is that the bill provides um, increased financial assistance um, for states that have not yet expanded their Medicaid programs if they choose to do so now. So the federal government would give money to states to subsidize their existing Medicaid populations um, if they were to expand Medicaid and the amount of assistance that they would give states um, to, to support that existing Medicaid population far exceeds the cost of bringing new people onto the state's Medicaid program. So in Wisconsin, that means that we could expand BadgerCare, which is already in the governor's proposed budget, we learned this week, and on top of the additional money we get from the federal government for doing um, for doing that, and the money we save as a state by not um, as a state subsidizing the the cost of people on our own um, Badger Care program, um, we would also, as a state, get this get 1.27 billion dollars in additional federal funding um, to support our state's Medicaid program. Can you imagine what 1.27 billion dollars could do for the state of Wisconsin and our healthcare programs, especially during this pandemic? I mean, this is this really could be a game changer for us. Um, now we don't know what the timeline for getting this passed is, but um, I I would really love it if this if this bill could get passed before um, the state adopts its biennial budget. And we will be talking more about how you can make the help make that happen, because this is about people power folks and how we can fight, fight the state budget fight. So, Joanna, do you have a quick thought on the importance of health care affordability before we move on to the state budget? Yeah, just, you know, just want to add, like Claire said, this is still in the early stages and in committee and then just want to emphasize what you just said robert right we still need people power we still need to make sure that we're organizing around these issues to make sure that we see them come to reality because you know it's it's, a, it's life or death right now right the lack of affordability the lack of access to health care has been hurting um our communities and our state and our country for a really long time now and it, you know it would it would be great to be able to access both of those things especially during a pandemic. So we also have Governor Evers being far bolder so far with this state budget. We won't see the whole state budget until next week, uh, but he has been giving out teasers. And it's being described by some, including in the governor's office, as a re-election budget. And of course, it's interesting how a re-election budget is a bolder, better budget. So maybe we, all budgets should be a re-election budget. Just a thought. Uh, it tells you about the uh, grip of the lobby core, which is not the same thing as the public interest, the paid lobbyists in Madison, Iron Triangle that it is. But three big initiatives. Badge care expansion, which we really just talked about a little bit. Uh, Governor has already announced that'll be in the budget. And Citizen Action led the fight with a great coalition, and our members did. Uh, in 2019, we will be all in again. Uh, another one that may be new to people, although Governor Evers ran on prescription drug price affordability, and we worked with him on that platform back in 2018 in the general election, and that is real prescription drug reform, and then also legalizing marijuana. Now, I want to go to Claire on prescription drug price reform. We have the privilege here in Battleground, Wisconsin, of having the person who led the fight to get this in the budget to tell us what it all means. So, Claire, go right ahead. 
Ah, thank you. I, I am particularly excited about this uh, this policy that the governor rolled out. Um, so it's the creation of a prescription drug affordability review board, um, and basically. Uh, you know, we all know that prescription drug prices are out of control in this country, and it's largely due to two reasons. Um, one, that um, pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers are allowed to set the price at whatever they want, and then they can raise that price. Um, so this, we've already seen this happen in 2021. Pharmaceutical companies raised their prices in January at the start of the new year, well over the rate of inflation. Um, and secondly, uh, the, well, for the federal government just allows them to do that without any checks. Um, and then and secondly, the federal government grants um, uh, patents and monopoly control over specific drugs and ex exclusive production rights to pharmaceutical companies, um, which means that not only can they set the price, but then there is the starting price, but there's no market competition at all to help drive the price down. Um, and so, so really, the, it's the federal government that has created these problems, and the state can't fix them. But what the state can do is say, here's how much we think you should be only required to pay out of your pocket for one of these expensive drugs. Drugs um, They can put out-of-pocket caps on excessively expensive drugs. And so what the governor's um, budget proposed was a, a slate of things, and a couple of them are, um, like I said, creation of a prescription drug affordability review board that, um, and now I'm, I'm going to be cautious with my words here because we haven't seen the actual bill, just a teaser. Um, that will be able to evaluate drugs for um, price gouging and excessive price increases. And then whether it's for just people on um, state um, health plans or if it's um, the entire state's population um, can set limits on how much people should have to pay for those drugs. Um, and then it also created a prescription drug um, uh, affordability unit in the Office of the uh, Commissioner of Insurance, which is great because it institutionalizes the review of drug prices. And um, we know that transparency um, measures are sort of short-term um, fixes in trying to bring down drug prices, but there is some research that indicates that when drug companies have to be transparent about their pricing, um, they get shamed a little bit and will bring down their prices. So, so that could help in the short-term as well. So this is huge, and I want to also, because unlike in Republican world where the operating pronoun is I, like Trump, the fearless leader, is responsible for all, we are a social movement, so the we is all of the Citizen Action members that made calls, sent emails to urge Governor Evers to put this in the budget. And then, of course, we need that to continue and more people to be involved to keep it in the budget. Seems to me, and I want to pitch it to Joanna, the petition drug prices is that it, it tests one of the top uh, issues um, in, in the state for voters. In fact, uh, we've seen numbers, which are private numbers, showing as high as the mid 80% for prescription drug reform and a prescription drug price review board. So, Joanna, it seems to me this creates a dilemma for Republicans. They can kill it if they want to because it came from a Democrat governor and then be held accountable by voters or they can go along and actually do some public good, and uh, but they'd have to take on a big corporate sector to do it. What do you think, Joanna? Yeah, I think that we'll see where their real loyalty lies, right? Is it gonna be to their voters? We're coming up on an election year. Um, so weird to say, considering 2020. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know where they're gonna land. You know, obviously I hope it's with the people, 
Um, but I guess only time will tell. Um, I mean, what do you think, Robert? Or, or you, Claire? Like, where do you think they're going to land on this? Like, prescription drug costs is affecting all Wisconsinites. So are they going to have our backs? I think we have a fighting chance if we mobilize enough. I'm hoping Claire agrees, but let's see what Claire thinks. Yeah, I think that um, people, no matter their income, no matter whether they live in rural or urban areas, no matter the color of their skin, what's in their wallet, everybody, what party they vote for, everybody's affected by prescription drug costs. And I think the universality of this issue gives me hope that we could get bipartisan support for these policies. I will say is I hope that it is that the board will be reflective of not only folks with state insurance, but private insurance too. So it's helpful to all Wisconsinites. If Tony's really going for a re-election budget, like let's go all the way. And that's another thing. Watch out for Trojan horses. Uh, they got it, but they say they did it. So always watch for Hanky Panky in Madison. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, you are listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. We talked about the legacy of Act 10 here on Battleground Wisconsin in the first two segments and uh, some of Governor Evers's bold initiatives that he has put out as teasers ahead of his formal announcement of the full state budget next week. Uh, so I want to talk about one other state budget item before we go to a lot of stuff going on at the federal level. And um, one big one that has been teased out by the governor is legalizing marijuana. Seems like a, there's really been a sea change. This reminds me a little bit of, of gay marriage in terms of public opinion shifting. We've had a long period of prohibition, and it's been as devastating as prohibition. It's put a lot of people needlessly in jail. Uh, it is criminalized a whole part of, and by the way, disproportionately black and brown people, because you, you're in a position to get away with it more if you're, if you're a white person than a person of color. And of course, those are the communities that are over-policed, right? And so, but also just a denying a fundamental freedom, like this is not a drug that is dangerous enough that it should, there should be outright prohibition. But you have uh, conservatives, the way they work is they use the backlash against social change like this to their advantage, but they move gradually. So they can't be right out for Jim Crow. So they become for taking down welfare, you know, they find some other way. And so we're at this inflection point where Governor Evers, who is a very traditional Democrat, has not been known as Reefer Tony. And I, I was going to joke that he never will be, but who knows? The Republicans may run those ads. Their ads are so detached from reality. But this is a very mainline, older generation Democrat, Tony Evers, coming around on a big issue. And it affects mass incarceration. It generates a lot of revenue. Um, it actually makes it safer because people are going to keep using marijuana. It is it is it is no more dangerous than than alcohol, um, and in it and so and it also just expands freedom. Why should government make this decision for folks? But I want to get both your thoughts on this as an, as a, as a political issue and as a legislative issue. I think this is a dynamite issue for the state. Um, this is this is something that could 
um, create a whole new industry um, in the state. It could support um, urban urban areas where um, you know farming is is a big deal. Um, and uh, this could be a you know a new crop if we're if we're allowed to grow it here. Um, I think uh, there are people in the state who want to purchase and use marijuana legally, and they're traveling to other states to do it. So it would bring that retail and service industry into the state instead of us hemorrhaging um, uh, those dollars into neighboring states like Illinois. Uh, so uh, really, this is um, I think an issue that's that's. Uh, really a no-brainer for, for this state. And I hope that the legislature will give it the serious consideration that it deserves. Yeah, I, me too. I mean, there's so much with this, um, with this bill, with this possible new legislation, right? I mean, it's definitely like a pop culture thing, right? But it's also an economic thing. Like you said, it's criminal. Um, it's a criminal thing, right? Like it's mass incarceration. It's it touches on so many different issues. Uh, it's exciting because I think it could possibly activate uh, a new demographic or, you know, further engage with people. It's different issues that we can um, organize around, right? Um, it's an issue that's supported in rural and urban areas. Um, so that's helpful to bridge that divide. Um, you know, Tony has previously said that if this legislation came across his desk, he would sign it. So it's about time he put it in his budget. Um, hopefully they'll, you know, do some more work around it. Um, you know, one of the biggest things for me is making sure that we are addressing the criminal justice component of this, right? Um, making sure that we're talking about legalization and expungement in the same breath. Right, like um, there's so many folks uh, walking around Wisconsin that have these uh, marijuana tickets hanging over their heads, right? Like we talk about this all the time that even when tickets are um, get dismissed, you know, it's still there on on CCAP or you know the individual municipality website saying that this was a charge at some point. Um, and so I, I just hope that we'll move the conversation towards changing um, expungement legislation, making it easier for folks to clear their record of such um, of such charges. You know, sure. and I want to quickly shout out, but real quick, Robert, I want to quickly shout out um, Melissa Sargent, right, previously in the, in the Assembly and now in the Senate, who has introduced marijuana legalization legislation multiple times. Um, and it's awesome to see it, you know, come to get a little bit further al along the along the line. And let's when we're at it, shout out all of the activists who have been pushing for this for years, have been at farmers markets and every festival imaginable. Uh, some of them are connected to normal, but there is not any one big, well-funded group pushing this. This is a true grassroots movement that has gone on for decades and was happening on college campuses for decades. And so now, though, the Republicans are going to be happy to kill this. So I do, again, this is going to be about organized people really putting pressure on them. And I do think, like prescription drugs, it's a political loser for them. But we've noticed they're willing to take on political losers all the time. Uh, they really are. So I want to kind of switch here uh, to the federal level, where as many things are happening in Wisconsin that's positively sleepy, 
compared to the early Biden administration, where there was executive order after executive order and huge historic COVID relief uh, being discussed at the same time that we were having the first ever second impeachment of a president. And so first, and, you know, people are hearing a lot about impeachment, right? Um, So I don't want to replicate what we're hearing on CNN and MSNBC and Yours truly looks at Fox because you have to know what the other, the, what the propaganda on the other side is. Fox primetime, I mean, is where the propaganda is. Uh, but it seems to me that there is a real dilemma for Republicans. They have an electorate they're concerned about because there has been 40 years of investment to create this feeling of grievance among a lot of people and this desire to attack others for their problems that was necessary in order to set up a political environment where you could steal the money for the top 0.1%. We see a massive shift in economic resources to the very top. And so it's there, it's real, it's not just Trump. And so you have that versus the obvious, the case that the House of Democrats are making is very compelling the first couple of days and the Trump legal defenses not even remotely ready for prime time, nor do they have a very good case to make. Uh, They have a weak case to make and they're making it poorly. And so it's just interesting to see how many of them have any principle. There's disturbing news on NPR this week uh, where, uh, let's see, four in 10 Republicans say political violence may be necessary is a new survey. So this is the base they're responding to. So I think this, I, I don't know, I just think this question of whether there are 17 senators who will do the right thing or not is an existential question for the future of the Republican Party and its viability. But you may have another thing you want to respond to on impeachment other than that, because that's a big question. I just want to get your quick reactions, because obviously there's a lot of information overload, but your unique perspective is what would be interesting to our listeners. I don't know if I have anything particularly unique to say, but I think that the House impeachment managers evoke and not let people forget the sense of horror of what really happened on that day. Uh, And I I think that's appropriate. Uh, Joanna? You know, I absolutely agree, Claire. I think that we can't let folks forget that this happened, right? You know, not only here, not only um, the American people, but all around the world, like folks, this needs to be something that we don't forget. And it's part of, even though it was a very emotional thing, but I think that the way they're handling this and, you know, bringing out the emotional side of, of the story um, is very appropriate. Like you said, Claire, um, it helps it stay more ingrained, I think, in people's heads when they think about the feelings that they had when they saw these attacks on our U.S. Capitol. Um, I think uh, without a doubt, when we look back on Donald Trump and we think about impeachment one versus impeachment two, impeachment two will definitely um, be the lingering conversation uh, and part of his legacy. And one thing, it also, if we, if we normalize this, democracy is at risk. If there's nothing that's impeachable, if this isn't, and he or someone else can come back and steal an election. It takes off all the all the guide rails. I do think, as we go to break, that the Biden administration strategists have been unduly worried about this taking away from COVID relief. I'm sorry. I think this put paints the Republicans such a bad light 
that it actually makes it much more understandable that we would move forward with what we need to do, whether they are on board or not. And to take other steps, we'll probably have to take like dramatically limiting the filibuster, if not eliminating it altogether. And so I, I just, the Republicans, they're looking down. They have no real answers. Uh, many of them are very impressed by the presentation, but are still going to go and, uh, and, and go along because they, because this is the kind of politics that's been created in their actual base. So, and, and Fox News is continuing to supercharge it. So every night with horrendous unethical propaganda. So we got to take a break. You were listening to Battlegrounds Wisconsin, and we have some more federal discussion after the break. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We are actually now without Claire Zoutke. Our, our, one of our panelists had to leave. So this is one-on-one with Joanna Bouch and I. I'm Robert Craig uh, of Citizen Action Wisconsin. This is Joanna Bouch of Citizen Action Wisconsin. And we were talking about impeachment. And obviously, that's what everyone's eyes are on right now. But at the same time, as the Biden administration has been counseling, we need to keep our eye on the ball that COVID relief and mitigation is absolutely critical. And we have uh, Biden, Joseph Biden, putting out a $1.9 trillion plan. It is dramatically bolder than what the Obama-Biden administration did around, uh, around the bailout and about, about the stimulus uh, during the Great Recession. And that was a huge mistake. And Democrats seem to have learned their lesson, establishment Democrats. Progressives have been wanted more all along. And that doing too little back then in 2009, in many ways set up 2010 in the Tea Party, because if you leave unemployment at 10%, then it's much harder to win elections. And that was part of the Tea Party anger. Uh, And frankly, you have to, and this does so much more that Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary under, under Bill Clinton, and then a chief economic advisor under Barack Obama, so an architect really of the of the freelance deregulated financial system that almost caused the Great Depression 10 years ago, it was really very close, is now in an op-ed uh, saying it's too much and being cited by Republican senators and their opposition. So that tells you how far left establishment Democrats and Joe Biden himself is moving. So it is appropriate. But Janet Yellen pointed out, the Treasury Secretary on the Sunday shows, that if we don't do this, we're not going to get back to COVID-19 employment levels until 2025. Really, people can wait without jobs and opportunity. And furthermore, uh, Biden administration officials are now saying that the unemployment rate of 6% isn't really 6%, that the numbers actually miss a lot of people who lost their jobs and now permanently unemployed. It's more like 10%. So it is very, very high. And then, of course, we need all this money to halt the pandemic, which is the cause of all of this. And life is at stake. And so the big debate, Joanna, has been make it bipartisan. Don't make it bipartisan. You have 10 Republican senators, not even clear they're all serious, offering a third of the amount. But the Democrats have decided to move forward and saying that that's inadequate Really, Joseph Biden in his earlier career might have taken the deal because bipartisanship has been a big value for him as a U.S. senator for many decades and is moving forward through the very complicated budget reconciliation process, which allows them to do this with just 50 votes, which means we do need to hold the moderates, the very conservative end of the moderate spectrum. Joe, uh, that is Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, for example. 
So, Joanna, do you think it's the right thing for them to go bold and then to to, to do it with all Democrats if need be? And that I think that they, there's a moral calculation here, but there's also a political calculation that if they don't do enough, President Biden and the Democrats will be blamed for not doing enough. And that's what happened to Obama. What do you think of that? You know, I wonder sometimes does Biden think about all that backlash that Obama got and continues to get, right? Um, and does that weigh in on his way of leading? You know, I hope it does. I hope that he recognizes the mistakes that have that were made um, during the Obama administration. So I think that Biden is making the right decision to go bold, right? We need that type of leadership. You know, um, I'm so over Democrats thinking that they have to be more moderate, thinking that they need to put forth legislation or change their leadership style to have a more, to appeal to a more moderate um, demographic, right? I don't think the answer is trying to get, uh, you know, voters that are uh, unsure or that are, um, you know, we call it compromise with ourselves. And as you know, in other words, that's what Democrats tend to do. But then in addition, uh, addition to that, uh, we know that there really aren't this whole group of milquetoast moderate voters, the warm porridge voters, so to speak. Right. They're cross-pressured voters, and they actually tend to be attracted both to conservative candidates that speak in a populist way and progressive candidates that do. It's why there were these Trump Bernie Sanders voters that were neither side, mm -hmm. but were not for Hillary in either case. And so you need to go out there with something real that will actually improve people's lives. So I couldn't agree with you more. I want to point out there's one big question because we, we're going to be honest on this podcast as progressives. Uh, on the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage, Biden put it in his re relief package, but he seemed to kind of give it away over the weekend. He said, yeah. The Senate rules for budget reconciliation, the way to pass it with only 50 votes, only Democratic votes, won't really allow it, so it probably won't happen. But then there was real pushback from progressives and Bernie Sanders, who is chair of the budget committee. Think about that. The chair of the budget committee is Bernie Sanders. That's a revolutionary change. Says we're working with lawyers to make it legal, and it, it does have a budget impact, so it ought to be. But then also it turns out and this is taught, being pointed out by many, that Kamala Harris could overrule the Senate parliamentarian. That's the one who makes this decision about uh, whether it can be included or not in, in, uh, in this budget reconciliation process. And so it is within the power of the Biden administration. We're actually hoping the $15 minimum wage ends up in Tony Evers' budget as well. It's just a minimum standard to raise the wage floor for everyone. And it's really harming the country. Uh, it, it harms equity. It harms just tons of low-wage workers because all the attacks on labor we talked about in the first segment have lowered in real, real incomes. So on that boldness front, would you really make sure you, get, you use any means necessary, including Vice President Harris, to get uh, a minimum wage, the $15 minimum wage, into COVID relief? What do you think, Joanna? Oh, absolutely. I mean, raising that minimum wage has been is, is low hanging fruit, right? It's been something we've been fighting for for a long time. And it would be great to see uh, Biden lead on that. But not only Biden, but to see Kamala kind of come in and like push that over. I think that they need to 
focus on some of focus more on some of this low hanging fruit that's really gonna excite the American people, right? That's gonna kind of give us that reassurance that Biden and Kamala are here for us and they're gonna go to bat for us. Uh, and I think that we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, and so let's just hope that it keeps going. You know, Biden is co becoming more left. We're seeing that, you know, he's lefter than our Democrats here in Wisconsin. Um, and I think that it just needs to keep going. And they need to move where Biden's gone here in Wisconsin. And hopefully the governor oh, yeah, is being absolutely. to make progress there. So there's also a whole, there's so many orders. It's hard to keep track of all of them. We want to do a couple quickly and, and contest. One of the things that uh, the Trump folks were doing is denying uh, the right to housing to people in the LGBT community. And we, of course, are both in that community, Joanna and I. And so that's a breath of fresh air, it seems to me. The conservatives are saying still that somehow you have a religious right to decide that someone just because of their sexual orientation can't, can't rent an apartment. So does it, does it make you excited that an executive order around that uh, it from, uh, has come from this new administration so quickly? Of course it does. You know, like you said, we're both part of the LGBTQ family, right? I'm a bisexual woman. I am ecstatic to see this type of leadership, to see my president champion, being a champion for my community, right? Uh, especially, you know, considering the last four years, uh, I felt it 100% accurate to say that my president hated me, right? As a woman, as a brown woman, as a queer person, you know, Donald Trump hated me. <laughs> and so to see, you know, President Biden come out um, with this, you know, executive order supporting our LGBTQ community, you know, it's a, like you said, it's a breath of fresh air. So many, so for so much and, and so many issues, right? Housing, healthcare, education, we are seeing the LGBTQ community being discriminated against especially, you know, our transgender community. And so, um, you know, this is absolutely something that we've been waiting for for a long time. And I applaud the Biden administration for this. Couple other quick hits on, on the, both the plus and the less plus side. Uh, there is a wave of anti-Asian violence in this state, in this country. And it was fomented by Trump calling COVID-19 a China virus. Uh, that continues, but Biden has at least made some executive orders to try to investigate and has said a lot of better things about it being outrageous and unreasonable. So that is a sea change, but more to do there. A lot more to do on immigration reform. And as a Latina, you know that, yeah. the, the, you know, now we have the horrendous policy of the Trump administration and not too good ones, the Obama administration, the uh, INS and ICE are rogue agencies and are violating all of Biden's orders around this, immediate orders around this, and deporting tons of people, especially black immigrants, um, at a massive rate. So it's really going to need to see if Biden and his new Homeland Security Secretary can rein that in. And we'll talk about both of those in a future episode because we're almost out of time. But then finally, we have the big news that the first trip outside of Delaware or D.C. for Joseph Biden is Wisconsin in Milwaukee next week. So more on that. We'll be able to talk about what happened next week. So you've been listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Thank you to Claire Zoutke, uh, our panelists. And thank you to Joanna Bouch and our host, normal host, Matt Brusky. We'll be back next week. So until then, have a great weekend and, uh, and, and keep up the fight.